Welcome to the Conservation Queens podcast. We are four girls who love the earth and have a passion for living a more eco-friendly life. We are real-life zoo employees, and as always, nothing that we say reflects our organizations, and all thoughts and opinions are our own. Now, please keep in mind that we try to keep our podcast PG-13, so if you have younger listeners, you may want to review the content beforehand. And with that, I'm Kenzie. I'm Abby. I'm Emily. And I'm Katie. And let's talk about some stuff. All right. Oh, we did it. it. We did it. (laughs) Kenzie used to do it every time because she got it perfect and all of us can't do it. (laughs) That was very good. That was great. certainly cannot be trusted to do this intro anymore. Wow, Kenzie, I'm so impressed. Thank you. Um, Okay, so before we do a fan shout out, um, I have a very special conservation queen shout out uh, because a certain conservation queen (gasps) just got the most exciting news of her life today. (laughs) Katie, Um, tell the people. Yeah, so you all know I work as a zookeeper um, and I work on the animal ambassador team at my at my zoo, um, so I, like, work with a lot of, like, the small mammals and birds and uh, basically animals that can do, like, programs and education things. A really good How... slot. Yes, lots of beautiful slots. However, I recently got a promotion, and um, I will be now working with the gorilla and chimpanzee team at my <laughs> zoo, and I am freaking out about it a lot um obviously y'all know me this is what i've wanted for forever <laughs> oh are you gonna cry um i, I have cried i cried so much earlier today. Like, i think what you meant to say was <laughs> <laughs> yeah yep that sums up my feelings exactly very good well we so, are so proud of you thank you so proud thank you i'll be coming at y'all with some fun probably grill and chimp stories in the near future it's gonna Aww, be so yeah. disturbing and so good <laughs> no oh my gosh it's it was funny because when my uh supervisor like called me this morning to tell me he was like yeah, you know, uh, we were kind of fighting for you to stay on the animal ambassador team, like, full-time, because we obviously really love you there, but so-and-so wanted you more, and, you know, it's really hard to find people who are uh, into great apes and want to do that. <laughs> I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> who like, put me love? in, coach, put me yeah, in. Yeah, literally, yeah, that's what I've been saying since day one at this place, so... Uh, it's true, I guess. Some people, I don't understand it. Like, maybe you're a little afraid of them or whatever. But Hey, leave me alone. <laughs> but, you know, some of us are crazy and want to do it anyway. I'm so proud of you, Katie. And I can't wait for all of us to collectively go visit and wave, like, the yeah. proud children oh that we gosh. are. Like, Look, that's, that's our friend. There is still, I still will be doing a tour with them. Um, there's like a behind the scenes gorilla wow. tour there. So, do you want some testers? <laughs> oh, it's like I mean, it's like it's already a thing. It's been happening for a bit, but well, we can be we'll your be first audience for you. Oh, okay, yeah, I would appreciate that. That's right. a lot less pressure. Yeah, 
<laughs> All right. Um, do we have any other important announcements before conservation updates, Kenzie? Um, well, again, congratulations, Katie. That is awesome. Super Thanks. excited for you. Thank you. Uh, now, unfortunately, listeners, we're going to take a little rewind and bring well, home. The we got to address some some things that have been happening. In a, Very in the obvious. Because the years can't give us a break. No, no, they can't. And they definitely won't give a break to the people of Ukraine. No. Um, so obviously it doesn't feel right to go on with the podcast without acknowledging what's going on in the wider world. As everyone should know by now, last week, Russia did invade Ukraine and it is already becoming a humanitarian crisis and our hearts and thoughts go out to the people of Ukraine. But I'm also here to provide some verified charities that you can donate to that will help with a lot of the relief aid. Uh, Some of these charities are the International Rescue Committee, the Global Giving Ukraine Crisis Relief Fund, World Central Kitchen, uh, Save the Children. Uh, Save the Children I especially like because not only does it um, provide, you know, physical needs such as food and medicine shelter, but they also work on a lot of education and um, psychosocial support because this is very traumatizing, and especially as a child. Uh, Razam for Ukraine as well, which actually started in 2014 when Russia first went in and took over Crimea. And of course, the International Committee of the Red Cross and Doctors Without Borders, those are all great options if you're looking to donate and help with the relief. Um, and you know, with having a Patreon, um, if you guys are all okay, I think we could probably donate $20 to save the children to help out. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. For that. Yeah. Yeah, so if you're on Patreon, <laughs> help us donate. <laughs> this is this is where we want the money to go, though. We don't want yeah. it to just, it's not going into our pockets. It yeah. is helping well, keep us ad-free, but yes. it's to it's to help supplement the podcast and to give to charities that are benefiting mostly conservation, but in this case, the world, which is conservation anyway. So mm-hmm. this is to help with a stark humanitarian and international crisis. So this is the whole thing, is they tried to put these tracking devices, little backpack tracking devices on the magpies so they could observe their behavior and, you know, follow them and do all that. As scientists do, tracking devices help us learn so much with wild animals. However, this is what the article says, the magpies saw their friends had a strange metal parasite on them. And within hours, the group had cut them free from almost all of the trackers. Why are we surprised? So they were like, oh, my God, Frank, what's on your back? I don't know. Get it off me. And then they did. They were like, yeah, we got you, buddy. Don't worry. They swooped each other. They, Yeah, pretty much. So they can live up in in social groups of up to 12 individuals. So they will display group behavior and they, you know, quote swooping and all that child sharing, child rearing responsibilities. So. It's just, I thought it was really funny that within 10 minutes of fitting the final tracker, uh, and this is a quote from one of the scientists, within 10 minutes of fitting the final tracker, we witnessed an adult female without a tracker working with her bill to try and remove the harness off of a younger bird. They're too smart. (laughs) Within hours, most of the other trackers had been removed. By day three, even the dominant male of the group had its tracker successfully dismantled. (laughs) Incredible. (laughs) They're like... Oh my gosh, you know how we have birds aren't real in the U.S.? Mm-hmm. 
this is their attempt in Australia to make sure that they're not succumbed to the birds aren't real movement. Yeah, they're like, oh my god, we're not being turned into drones. Oh my goodness, absolutely Never. not. Uh, if you didn't know, magpies are corvids, so they are part of the corvid family. Oh, I thought you were about to be like so intelligent. I thought you were about to say, in case you didn't know, birds are all government drones. <laughs> oh. I mean, that's true. Also, yeah, in but... case you didn't know. Uh, you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> Several times you've heard it here first. But yeah, like, uh, corvids have been shown recognizing themselves in a mirror. They display tool use, uh, joking around, as this article says. So they have, like, they play, they have fun, social cooperation. They understand the concept of zero um, and so many other things. Yep. Mm-hmm. I yep. don't even understand the concept of I was zero. Say, <laughs> magpie smarter than me. So there you go. That was my little magpie article for you guys. It's so good. Now on to what Abby wanted to know about, which was the tequila fish. Yeah, I just have some questions, but I'm sure they'll be. Answered. It's just the name of a fish. That's uh, so disappointing. So this little fish, the tequila fish. Uh, actually went extinct in the wild. Uh, yeah. This is a big downer for what I thought was happening. Nope. It has finally been reintroduced back into the rivers of Mexico. Oh. Um, very recently. So they're very tiny little fish. Oh, and this uh, project actually started in 1998 uh, and has finally, I guess, reaped its benefits. So they are actually the first Mexican fish to ever come back so close to the brink of extinction. Um, and... <laughs> Uh, conservationists admit that it has been a long ride and a lot of work to save a drab green seven centimeter long fish that most people have never heard of but they believe it can be a rallying cry to help protect the country's waterways which I think think, is really cute do you think part of the problem might be that the first result I had was tequila fish taco creamy cilantro lime sauce (laughs) yeah maybe bam yeah (laughs) that recipe actually I'll find it I got you so Great. in 1998, the Chester Zoo in England gave five female and five male tequila fish to uh, Michoacana, I feel like I butchered that, but sure, University, who carefully nurtured them into larger and larger numbers. Um, so yeah, there you go. <laughs> they To prep them for life in the wild, they created like a large artificial pond habitat at the university. Um, which had 40 males and 40 females who had to learn to cope with predatory species, parasites, flood, food fluctuations, and more. Uh, so now they're they're back in, in the wild. So good for the tequila fish. I don't know why it's... It, the article does not say why they're named tequila fish. That's what I was kind of hoping for, but I have no answers for yeah, you on that, that was one. question number one, and I was really hoping <laughs> you were going to be like... There were fish that were smuggled in tequila bottles yeah, into I got the US, oh, and then we decided been, that we're like, no. That would have been funny. I had a lot more. Um, okay, I figured out why they're called the tequila fish. Oh, please <gasps> oh. enlighten me. Uh, they're from an area in Mexico that is near a volcano that's called, the name of the volcano is Tequila Volcano. So why <laughs> is it called Tequila Volcano? That's just, that's because. Just uh, well, I can click on because. its Wikipedia article. Um, oh, I found it. It's ne- located near the town of Tequila. And why is go. it town? <laughs> I'm sure well, it has to do with some Mexican some name. really good tequila. Oh, it's the birthplace of tequila. There, there you go. We <laughs> were like, everything so, in this town and around this town. The shall fish be named is named tequila. after the volcano, which is named after the town, which is named after the drink. <laughs> <laughs> we did it. 
<laughs> Today on rabbit holes with the conservation queens. All right. You got All anything right. else, Katie? Yes. My last piece of conservation news isn't so much. It's more of just like research news, I guess. Okay. Yeah. And it just is something that I think is freaking amazing because it, it's about chimpanzees. <laughs> And how amazing they are. She was so, like, no better way to celebrate my new job. Yeah. Woo! Well, how cool is this? So it was a finally like, caught on camera moment where a chimpanzee mother applies an insect to her son's wound. Um, showing, and like we've seen medicinal like or medicine use in chimps before where they will eat certain plants or rub certain things on them if they, you know, have whatever is ailing them. But it was kind of like one of those like really documented moments where it was uh, researchers were watching chimps in the wild in Gabon and applying applying insects to their wounds and the wounds of loved ones. So it was specifically Susie the chimp. Uh, she's inspected... a doctor. She's a, yeah, exactly. <laughs> inspected a wound on her adolescent son, Sia's foot. That's a fun name for the son. <laughs> Sia, uh, before catching an insect out of the air, putting it in her mouth, mouth, pressing it in between her lips, and applying it to the wound as her daughter, Sassandra, watched on. Um, which, the researchers were like, it shows that primates can show love and empathy for each other, just like humans. Like, we knew that, but I'm more interested in the, the fact using that bugs she was for using medicine. medicine part, yeah. So, anyways, amazing. We love it. So good. I love them That's i can't wait for your stories yeah me too <laughs> all right well i've got two downers and one upper <laughs> so oh we love zoo news man <laughs> you know i've tried to filter out all the deaths and the births well, because we get a lot of those that's just everyday stuff right which is like it still matters it's still important however Got some weird stuff this time. Right. Um, so the first one is a man tried to break into a tiger enclosure at the Boston Zoo, but then got arrested. Mm-hmm. So a Massachusetts college student who was, quote, very interested in tigers. Mm-hmm. I wonder what from. Was busted for trying to enter one of their cages at a Boston Zoo, a cop said on Tuesday, which was a while ago, but that's okay. So, basically, he climbed multiple fences to get into the keeper area and then fled when the workers approached him. Oh, my God. Like, honestly. Can you imagine being on that shift and seeing some random college student trying to get in with your tigers? I would be... Uh, literally yesterday someone hopped the first fence to and it was like there's like a guest fence and then there's a fence to an enclosure for one of our slots Mm -hmm. and that slot happened to be out and about he wasn't like near the mesh but like whatever and this kid just like hopped over and I like the quickness of lightning (laughs) ran out of our building and down there and was like please get back on the other side wow and we're talking about this was a sloth (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like still well contained in its habitat the kid was not going to get anywhere near it but i was like do not even do not even try oh somebody when i was an intern placed their child into the flamingo habitat oh my god yeah yep, and then we that. were like please take them out and he goes don't worry they're not hurting him and my friend uh- responded that's not what i'm worried about <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, really. Well, apparently this guy, his quote from this article says, oh boy. I, yeah, just wait. I was there as a spectator of the zoo. I didn't mean to harm anybody. I, was look- I wasn't looking to harm the tiger. I wasn't looking to harm myself, neither. Mm. College student. Mm. My plan was just to go see what is a tiger. How would a tiger react to a human being? Are you kidding me? I would say, since you're at a zoo, you could probably just ask the keepers, how do tigers react to human beings? That's like when people come up to me and I'm like in the area with one of our animals and like working with them and they go, is it friendly? And I'm like, to me, sometimes, (laughs) you know, we all have our days, but uh, to you, absolutely not. Well, and it continues. Don't even think about it. So it doesn't get better. Oh, well, dang it. it says... I was about 20 yards away, and there was a fence between me and the tiger. They say mm-hmm. it's something called the eye of the tiger, he continues. What? They say Why are we letting I- this man speak? I don't know. Because he's the one who did it. They say the eye of the tiger is the most dangerous thing you'll ever see in your whole life. They say that the soul is visible through the eye. I want to know what this man was smoking before he went into the sale. <laughs> and, like, I'm indulge yourself, whatever, right? Can you do it somewhere else? So that we don't put like our animals in harm's way. And then he says, the gates were open. I just walked in the gates and they closed the gate on me. I didn't realize I was trespassing. I thought I was just going to view the exhibit. Abraham did get close enough to the tiger to hear the animal growl. And he said, I didn't break in. I was let in. The tiger was in his cage. The tiger saw me and growled at me. And that was all. Yeah, it's almost like he didn't want you to be there. Well, then he only had to pay a $40 fee. And then he said, when they asked, when the news article asked if they would try, he tried again. He goes, go see a tiger. I don't know. Maybe. No, sir. You're banned for life. (laughs) Good try, sir. I just. uh... We actually did have someone the other week, like last week, pop over the first barrier to our elephant enclosure. Oh, my God. They tried that in San Diego. Did you see what happened? No. Oh, my gosh. This was a huge thing. In San Diego, this was like last december it was a while ago but a guy took his two-year-old daughter hopped oh, past oh, all the fences yeah, yeah. Oh. We talked about i think we talked about we, it we did and like was lucky the elephant didn't kill him yeah so it wasn't like there was still a moat and then the elephant area but he hopped the guest fence into their elephant area um and there was a keeper like you know out there like observing and she immediately emergency recalled all the elephants they all went inside right away Oh, good Ellie. This guy, oh yeah, they're they're great ladies. So this guy hopped back over the fence, and he was like apparently with a group of like five other people, and they just walked away. But the keeper, I was <laughs> I was like doing flamingo stuff at the time, and like uh, over the radio, they were like reporting it to the uh, manager that day, and they're like, "Who has eyes on this person?" And like they're calling security, and I was like. Like, just had my phone next to my ear, like, the whole time. Like, oh, my God, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Oh and they did gosh. catch the guy, and he did get um, kicked out of the park. So I hope he got banned Justice was served. Uh, apparently, they get one warning, which I think is really stupid. But he did get kicked out for the day. So go ahead. All right. So on another downer side, but, like, kind of okay, um, there's a Ukraine zoo that is being evacuated um, Isn't it and, the one in Kiev? Uh, it might be the one. Yes, it is the one in. It's the Save the Wild Animal Sanctuary near Kiev. Okay. Um, and the Polish Zoo um, 
is helping rescue all of the animals. They said on March 1st, a miracle happened. They received news that the drivers had made it past the occupation line. So they saved all the animals in Kiev. And then um, not so much zoo news, but I do know that Poland is now letting in people with their pets without any papers because they're just like, come in. Don't worry about Mm it. So that's been pretty awesome. Mm, That's great. Yeah. So good on them. They have like gorillas and lions and everything. Yeah, that's And the zoo said it is provided with everything necessary, including electricity, water, heat, and food. So if you can support that zoo too is amazing. Wow. So way to go. Woo. All right. Now my fun zoo news. So we all live in Florida. Oh yeah. No secrets there. It's the only, that's the only clue you get unless you're like (laughs) our parents and then you're like, well, um, and you know how there's like the Florida man. Yeah. Well, now we have Florida crocodile. Oh, (laughs) what? This is the title of the article. Zoo crocodile escapes transport van runs across oh. Florida highway. I thought you were talking about what happened at St. Augustine. Well, this is also out of St. Augustine, so no, I'm saying this is what happened at St. Augustine. Yes, yes, the other, yep. yeah, the other day, same page. So this, <laughs> I'm just gonna read the article because it's 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 from Southern Living and it's written very funny and I just really like it. A naughty crocodile went for a joy run Tuesday when he escaped from a transport van and fled on foot across a busy highway. Zoo personnel from the St. Augustine Alligator Farm Zoological Park in Florida were making the last run of the day transporting crocodilian species to a new zoo habitat when a particularly active croc made a run for it. General curator Jen Anderson said that she and reptile keeper Carson McCready were taking a quick trip up the road with four crocodilian species in the back of their van. Zoos are so cool, you guys. Ever take a trick, quick trip up the road with four crocodilian species? Can't say I've done it with four crocs, but I have done it with a ton of flamingos. So cool! What are our jobs? Yeah, it's wild. Um, oh my gosh. So apparently while they were driving, um, they were driving about half the 40 mile an hour speed limit, which is good because you have like, that's a, and it said, that's when the culprit made his exit. I want to be the person who writes these articles. Oh, who, let me see. It is Tara Mousele McKay. So God bless Perfect. this lady. She's 10 out of 10. Can I have her job? Yeah, a little. Oh, Kenzie, you'd be so good at this. Thank you. So the energetic croc crawled to the back of the van. Next thing the woman knew, he had popped out the the van's back window and climbed up the road. (laughs) (laughs) And then the curator says, I have this vision burned into my mind now of looking quickly out the rear view and seeing his little (laughs) back half go bloop out the window. Bloop. (laughs) Goodbye. I'm dead. And then they they got him back. They were able to get him back and restrain him and deliver him safely to his new home. But oh, nobody was ever in any danger. Uh, the crocodile was lucky that the oncoming car stopped. Um, what I would have given to be in one of those cars and having a front row seat to this crocodile just like booping out the back window. <laughs> and the article ends with, now that gives a new meaning to the term rush hour. Oh my god. Wow. <laughs> and there, St. Augustine Farm 
posted Crocodilian DoorDash. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they really Facebook. had a fun time with this. You know, because obviously they were able to get the gator very quickly. They had a great response to it. Oh, ten out of like, ten things so they prepare good. for. So like they were like, yeah, this happened, and but it was fine. Oh my gosh, like y'all. I know it's like it's not really like wholesome, but gosh, so funny, <laughs> so good. It's one of the more wholesome things this week. So I mean, <laughs> hey, all right, Emily, it's time for Beluga news, the best news, my favorite. Uh, so just one quick thing this week. Um, it was really hard to find some actual Beluga news this week. I don't know, there just wasn't a lot out there. Um, but Iceland has decided that in 2024, they are going to stop all whaling practices, which we love to hear that. Um, and the reason that they're doing it is they've decided there's no demand for it, which is even better. Um, (laughs) yeah. So at this point in time, um, other than, um, like native hunting practices, the only countries that permit commercial whaling are, uh, Norway and Japan. Um, so those are the only two countries in the world left that still allow any degree of commercial whaling um, because Iceland has decided no more, which is great. We love that. Protects a whole bunch of different types of whales that live in the North Atlantic. Um, we love to see it. Yay. Yeah. Awesome. Very good. All right. Now we, we actually get to the part of our episode where we have it, a theme. 20 minutes later. Sorry, but not really because that was that was a good run. That was good. Not as good as that crocodile's run, though. Um, (laughs) LOL. Can he be our mascot? (laughs) No, the belugas are. Um, Yes. Yeah. Anyways, let's get on with today's topic. So with spring coming up soon, we're going to talk about how you can create wildlife-friendly spaces outside of your own home, whether you live in a house, condo, apartment, dorm room, wherever. The National Resources Conservation Service defines a wildlife habitat as a combination of food, water, shelter, and space arranged to meet the needs of wildlife. Even a small yard can be a landscape to attract birds, butterflies, beneficial insects, and small animals. Trees, shrubs, and other plants help provide shelter and food for wildlife. We love it. Mm -hmm. So next up, our discussion, we have it kind of blocked off into a couple sections. And Katie, I think you're going to take us on to the first one. Where are we going? I sure am. We are going to the lovely pollinator friends who usually hang out around our homes anyways. But like, we can certainly encourage them to hang around more and give them more food and shelter and things that they need. So they could do the very, 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 very important job that they do for us, which is giving us all of the plants in the world, which we really love about them. It's really nice of them to do that for I'm us. I'm eating tomatoes right now. There you go. Couldn't have tomatoes without bees. Ba-bam. What do you know? Um, I'm actually going to talk about tomatoes in a little bit. So I'm going to start out with uh, butterflies specifically first and how we can create wildlife spaces for butterflies in the United States. Uh, there are hundreds of species of different butterflies and moths in the U.S., but One common factor among most of them is that they are pretty picky about their food choices. Uh, And then the other kind of facet to that is the food that the larvae or butter uh, or sorry, or caterpillars rely on is entirely different from the food that the adult butterfly needs. So some examples of this would be like the Eastern black swallowtail. 
the caterpillars are only found on plants in the carrot family, like celery, carrot, dill, and parsley. They won't eat anything else. I don't know why. They like their carrots. I will say dill is a really, really great um, plant to plant for butterflies, like just kind of across the board. A lot of caterpillars really love dill. I thought you were going to say it makes a really good dip, which is also true. I mean, there you go. You can also harvest it. That's great. Other perks to planting these things in your your garden or around your house or what have you. Uh, Another example is the tomato hornworm. Uh, So some of these animals, or sorry, some of these butterflies and moths, usually in their uh, caterpillar form or larvae form are really um, can be considered pests to some gardeners so for example tomato hornworms voraciously eat the leaves of tomato plants but then they transform into a really really pretty hawk moth so you know (laughs) you win some you lose some but then when you get to the adult butterfly state they require food in a liquid form um, like nectar from flowers They can also get it from the juices of ripe fruit. So those are kind of the two main things they're looking for when they're adults. They have really long, curly little tongues that extend into the flower, and then they slurp up the nectar. It's uh, very cute. I used to volunteer at a butterfly house at a nature center, and they always had fresh orange slices out for the butterflies. (laughs) Like, it was literally just like a little plate. And, oh my gosh, the monarchs especially would be, like, just sitting around this little orange, and they all had their little tongues on it, and they would just be, like, slurping up the juice from it, and it was so cute. Oh. Yeah, so, mainly, though, you're going to be looking to plant flowers around your home. So, the type of flowering plants you'll want um, will depend on the native butterflies in your area and what you're looking to attract, because, again, depending on the species, they really have their specific preferences, Um, But a good kind of across-the-board attractor is the butterfly bush, which is a great plant to start with. Um, And also just uh, putting out nectar feeders is a great way to attract butterflies, too, because not only will hummingbirds potentially feed from nectar feeders if you have hummingbirds where you live, uh, but butterflies will also feed from them as well. Uh, Aside from that, it really helps to know what the eggs and the larvae form of the butterfly you're looking to attract looks like. So that you can identify the species when they show up. So you're not like, oh my gosh, what are these bugs on my plant? Like, this is horrible. And it's actually like a monarch caterpillar, which is the butterfly you're looking to attract. So getting to know their eggs and larvae form is helpful. Um, And one important thing to note about butterflies is they're active during the day. And they need sunny basking spots to warm up in the morning. uh, Which can be things like like large rocks uh, that they can just sit on in the sun. Or even a concrete garden sculpture. Just imagine a beautiful little art sculpture in your garden. And then there's just butterflies all over it. I really love that image. Or go to the butterfly house and see them all on the ground. And just please be careful because they all like <laughs> the ground. Step on them. Yeah, because there's the warm concrete for you. Uh, as far as the water source goes for butterflies, they only need a shallow dish of water or a depression in a rock that retains water. So they don't need much. Just a little... A little bit of water for them when they get thirsty. Uh, now on to the bees. Gosh, I love them so much. Bees? Bees? Question mark. Now there are nearly five thousand species of bees in the U.S., so just a little bit more than our butterfly friends. Uh, and the majority of them are solitary, friendly bees that nest in holes in the ground or burrows in twigs and dead and dead trees. So, like when we think of bees, we usually think of uh, European honeybees. 
because they're the ones that live in a hive. They're the ones that produce honey. Uh, they're just, they're everywhere. They're, they're literally everywhere now. However, we have a, so many native bees that, like I said, are solitary. They do not live in a hive and they do not live in swarms. Um, and they're, because they're solitary, they're usually very friendly uh, because they're just by their lonesome. They're not looking to start any trouble. Like they think, just of your, want a think of your little bumblebees. Bumblebees are solitary. You know, they're just bumbling around. And if they like bump into you, they're like, whoops, sorry, my bad. And they scoot around you and they mind their business. Um, so that being said, 30% of the food we eat is pollinated by bees. So we do need them and we need to help them. Uh, but like butterflies, bees uh one thing that you can do to help uh bees without even planting anything uh, is just being very conscious of like if you have just say grass in front of your house um just being conscious about the uh insecticides that you're using if you use them uh bees are extremely sensitive to many commonly used insecticides so um this one I thought was interesting that I read if you must use them use them in the evening when the bees are less likely to be active uh, which was, again, I was just like, huh, who who would have thought that? I, I wouldn't have. So if you're looking to attract bees and to plant things for them, bees are attracted to most flowering plants and are especially fond of blue and yellow flowers. One of the best ways to help them is to have a variety of flowers where some will bloom in every season. So the boo- uh, the booze, the bees, <laughs> the bees have food all year round. They're only booze in October, Katie. Yeah, my bad. So you want to have flowers in October for them as well as every <laughs> other month of the year. Uh, a lot of times bees struggle with finding food uh, during the winter time. So that is when you can maybe look into a variety of flowers that do actually bloom in the winter and that could help them out a lot. Uh, one last thing that can really help out those bees is bee houses. Oh my gosh, I love bee houses. They're so cute. <laughs> uh, they give solitary bees a nice little home. Uh, they're usually like, uh, a lot of times I see them, they're like a hexagon shape and they just have little holes. It's like just made out of wood, little holes in it. Um, and you can make it yourself. There are some great tutorials on how to make your own bee house. Um, or you can buy it online or at many other places. I see them a lot at botanical garden gift shops when I visit. Um, and I always want to buy 15 of them. So they, they make them real cute if you buy them, you know, from places. But that's how you help the bees and the butterflies, friends. They make them real other... cute when you buy them from places. Yeah, I mean, well, that's, you know, that's the appeal of it. <laughs> I'm sure you could also make your own very cute bee house. I'm not that handy when it comes to woodworking. So. No, I just like how you said it. It was really cute. <laughs> there is one other pollinator that is very important that I'm going to let Kenzie talk about here. Because oh, uh, yeah. I don't know, as you guys might know, Kenzie is just a tiny little fan just a little one, like a bats. She kind of likes them or something. <gasps> I don't know. I love bats. All right, let's get to it, folks. So um, just like Katie was saying, when you are trying to attract different pollinators, they're really going to change from region to region where you live. Uh, here in North America, most of our bats are insectivores, although the lesser long-nosed bat has been known to pollinate agave, which makes Abby. What does it make? Tequila. <laughs> the tequila fish in particular. Yes. Well, no, no, no. So what happens is they make the drink and then they name the town after it. And then, <laughs> and then they name the volcano <laughs> after it. And then they name the fish after it. <laughs> That's our next girl's trip, everyone. That's where we're going. I would not be angry. Would be okay. 
Mm -hmm. Well, anyways, uh, most bats here in North America, as I said, are insectivores. So unless you live in the Southwest and you have some nice blooming cactus or agave, uh, what you're really going to want to do is provide a place for bats because they do help reduce some of the insect population. And a great way to do this is to plant fragrant night blooms that attract nocturnal insects. So some of these may include dahlia, French marigolds, honeysuckle, which I love personally, evening primrose, thyme, and even raspberry. Now, another thing you can do, I mentioned providing them a home. You can make a bat box, just like how we have bee houses. You can also make a house for bats. It's pretty simple. You can actually go online and find a dozen several tutorials on how to make a bat house. I actually got to make one a couple weeks ago myself, which was pretty cool. Or if you would like to save time, there are lots of places where you can purchase a bat house from. Where did you get to make one? I got to make it at work. <laughs> oh, wow. We love that. Yeah, I, I work in a greenhouse now currently, and we have a lot of power tools, and we do some woodworking because we like to make raised beds and stuff. So you could make a bee house, too, if you wanted. We could make a bee house. We probably have a lot of leftover material <laughs> from <laughs> our latest garden installation. But yeah, we had extra time and extra wood on our hands. And one of my coworkers was like, hey, you want to play around with some power tools? And I was like, absolutely. absolutely. I, I love power Double. tools. <laughs> so now I love power tools, but I love bats even more. Well, here's I, the deal. Um, you did you miss a pollinator. Stuff. Big mad. Oh, oh, go on, go on. The birds. Mostly hummingbirds are pollinators, but you might also want to know how you get dem birds in your area. Do I get them from the government? <laughs> yeah, you just well, file you can an do order. that. <laughs> or you can try to attract the drones in a natural way. Um, I'm going out of order on the document, but I figured this is a better transition. Yeah, that's okay. It's a good spot. So one way to get them birds, them drones in your area is to provide a water source. Um, you want a shallow dish because they're not going to like swim in it, but they do like to bathe in it. And you want to make sure it's clean water. Uh, and if you would like a hint, moving water detracts mosquitoes so you don't get mosquito larvae. So maybe try to do a fountain of some sort. Would work. Yeah. I wonder if a cat fountain would work. I don't know if they're large Ooh. enough for yeah. a bird to bathe in. Maybe some are. Maybe maybe like a small songbird, possibly. Yeah. Not like but a also, hawk. I don't know if they're meant to be outdoors because they have to be, you know, in an outlet and such. That's true. Well, either way. <laughs> it was a thought. We're going to create a bird-specific water fountain. I think that exists already. Okay, um, well... Never mind. <laughs> you also want to have a diverse landscape. So having um, really tall trees, bushes, maybe a pond if you can, because every bird houses in different places. You can make bird houses. Those work great for some species, but you have to be really careful about maintaining them. Um, and you want to make sure that you're kind of targeting a species. So we talked about Purple Martins uh, last year with Michelle, who is amazing. Um so purple martins only use pine needles and dead leaves to nest, and they usually like oak leaves. So if you were to have a purple martin house, you want to have that available because if you don't, they're not going to use it. They're going to be like, this is not worth my time. So that's important. Um, and then natural houses work great too, so that's always fun. 
You want to have lots of native plants because birds like to eat stuff from plants. Um, they sure do. They sure do. And they also like to eat bugs too. So not a bad thing either. Um, especially native plants are important because that's where the birds are getting their food sources from. They don't trust very easily. So you want to have as many native plants as possible. <laughs> that plant. I've, ne- I've never seen that before. Mm. <laughs> Looks sus. sus. <laughs> I'll report this one back to the government. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you can also try bird feeders. Um, they're great, but you got to put time in. So bird feeders are not for everybody. They need to be properly cared for to be effective. So not all bird seeds created equal. I'm a fan of black oil or sunflower seeds, but then I moved to Florida and that's not the best thing down here because it's not the same animals that are eating. So you have to kind of look to make sure you're using the right stuff. There's a lot of filler sometimes in bird seeds, And you don't want to have very much filler in it because it's not very good for them. So being able to look at different types of feeders, like platform versus a tube feeder um, versus like a suet feeder, and then knowing what birds you're trying to attract so you can get the right food for them. And then you have to maintain a bird feeder so I can put it on one of my windows and then my cat can watch them. That's a good, safe way to do that, I think, yes. Oh, he loves, I mean, he likes watching birds anyway outside our house all the time. He's got a little spot by the window that he does it, and I just want to bring the birds to him. I mean, there's but- a lot of really good window feeders, but then you have to make sure that you're maintaining them. Um, if they get icky, you can spread mm-hmm. diseases to birds. Mm-hmm. Not good. Mm-hmm. If they get empty, make sure you fill them, because otherwise the birds are going to be like, there's no food there anymore. I will leave. I will leave now. So um, what I would like to propose is if we get more patrons, we can buy a bird buddy. And by we, I mean me. <laughs> it is a $300 bird feeder, but it comes with an oh my app. God. Oh. No, 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 no. Listen. Is that like a camera? Yeah, and them? it identifies the birds for you. Oh, that's, that's cool. It's the coolest. And I asked for one for Christmas, and Tyler said that was silly. Because <laughs> it's $300. <laughs> and I was like, you're not wrong, but also, like... Could we? Oh my god. Be cool. Um, so after you do all of these like really great things, you can actually get your backyard uh, habitat certified by the National Wildlife Federation. Yes. Which is pretty cool. I looked into it. Um, I don't have a big enough backyard, I think, to do any of this, but something to strive for in the future. But basically, there's a $20 application fee to the National Wildlife Federation. And it gets donated to like help more backyard habitats. You fill out a checklist of things in your backyard that you have. Um, and you need five things. You need a food sources. You have to have at least three food sources. You have to have at least one water source. You need at least two shelters. And on the checklist that's on their website, they have it broken down of like what things count as these things. So it's not like you could just like put two sticks together and be like, I did it. There's like more. To I, it. Di- I did it. <laughs> two sticks, um, which is good for like a mosquito. But you also need places to raise the young. So you have to have at least two areas for that. And it says specifically for animals to mate and then raise their young. Which I thought was kind of funny. So I just included that in. I love it. You know, and then you also have to have two sustainable practices in your backyard. So. Um, Yes, that's one of them. So there are three categories they fall into. There is soil and water conservation, controlling exotic species, and organic practices. 
And the two things that you do have to fall into two different categories. You have to check off at least two of the categories. Obviously, if you go above and beyond and do more, awesome. <laughs> if not, I mean, sometimes you gotta go, you got to do what you got to do, and that's okay. If you do have your backyard certified, you get some perks. Number one, you get a personalized certificate. Pretty wow. cool. <laughs> Number two, you get a cool plaque for your garden that you can then purchase. Um, to say that it is, oh, you have to purchase of- it. We don't yeah. give you the plaque for like getting the certification. Okay, never well, mind. you got the certificate. That's what that certificate's for. Yeah, yeah. I guess you could laminate that and stick it in your yard if you wanted to. <laughs> I guess. Um, but I think it might have some information on it that you don't want to share with your neighbors. Yeah, whatever. Uh, you can get a cool sign for your garden if you want to buy that. You get some uh, magazines and e- e-newsletters for the year about, like, backyard habitat and gardening and stuff. And then you get a discount on merch and merch as in, like, stuff to improve your habitat farther, like birdhouses and feeders. and Like that kind the of cool $300 thing. bird feeder that Abby wants. I don't think that's included, but that <laughs> would be, a, like, a super big selling point for me to figure out how to get my teeny little yard ready to go. So that's my segment on birds and certifications. So I loved it. Emily, because we know you can't have a beluga in your backyard as much as we'd love. Yeah, um, she could one day. I was going to say, you're not the boss of me. I, okay. <laughs> when we I all buy. She's going to move. When we buy our compound in Alaska, when we win the lottery. Yes, Ooh. it will back up to the ocean and I'll just wave at all the belugas as they swim by every day. Okay. Well, <laughs> if, if you. Here in Florida, I'm having trouble guessing that you could have a beluga in your backyard unless you live near SeaWorld. Um, so what are some water sources that could, like, help out our animals that maybe don't need as much or as cold of water as beluga whales? I suppose. Uh, I yes, was trying to so transition, and then it, like, derailed real fast. It's okay. okay. It's fine. Um, well, Katie loves bees, and love Abby bees. loves birds, and Kenzie loves bats. And Emily loves beluga whales, but as Abby mentioned, you can't put a beluga whale in your backyard or try to attract them. In Florida. Illegal, allegedly. Um, (laughs) What do you mean allegedly? The Marine Mammal Protection Act is a suggestion. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I don't really want to spread that message to our listeners. Mm -mm. Please follow that law. Um, I just had like four talks about manatees to people today, and it was very depressing because they were all like, "Well, I want to hug them," and I was nope, like, "Nope, can't do no. that." No. So there are some other animals uh, that you can attract to your backyard, and I'm going to specifically focus on reptiles and amphibians. Yes. Um, a we lot love. of reptiles and amphibians are great pest control. Um, snakes are good at eating things like mice and rodents. Um, you get rabbits or not rabbits. I, oh, <laughs> in my head, dang, the word okay. was ribbit for frog. And <laughs> you, you want some ribbits in your backyard? <laughs> some ribbits and some rabbits. If, actually, one of the um, listed benefits of attracting amphibians to your backyard is uh, all the noise they make, apparently, I according mean, to a website that I honestly, saw today. Honestly, though, like, have you ever heard a better white noise at it's night? It's so it's cool. They're pretty great. Uh, so anyway, um, one of the best ways to um, do that is to create what's called a toad abode. Yes, which is that. the cutest thing I've ever heard. Um, and they do make like ones that you can buy at like the store that like look like a cute little mushroom house Why? or like uh. other little fairy 
Oh my god, object. yeah. All you have to do cute. is Google toad a boat and bam, they're Listen, there. I get it's cute, but like there's so no, many cheaper that. ways to do that. Yeah, well, but they're so cute. It, we got options. Um, I just want to note that a lot of this information is coming straight from the Houston Arboretum. Um, so I didn't plagiarize. I just, you know, decided to Okay, I'm on Amazon. There is a toad house that costs twenty dollars, and it's literally a pot upside down labeled "toad house." Yeah. All right, so let's get into it. Um, so what is a toad abode? Great question. Well, as Abby mentioned, it can be as simple as a pot turned upside down <laughs> with the um, words "toad abode" and then with a door. You can charge people twenty dollars for them. <laughs> so if you're looking for a side hustle, you can make toad abodes and upcharge the heck out of them. Um, and that's um, on sale because it's usually thirty dollars. But if you're interested in making your own toad abode and you have like a leftover plant pot or something like that, you can just turn it upside down, cut a little door into it decorate it however you want, and stick it outside. Now, um, there are lots of benefits of, um, like I mentioned, of these bringing toads and frogs into your yard, um, such as the fact that a single adult adult toad can eat 10,000 bugs in one summer. That is a lot of bugs. It's a lot of bugs. Don't again. Don't really know where they're putting them, but you know, in <laughs> their little tiny tummies, in their little bellies. Um, this article did specifically say, please do not like find a toad and put it in your house, like in the toad house, um, because they have to choose it. They have to they have to decide where they want to live. Okay, like if you plucked one out of the ground somewhere, he was already living somewhere he wanted to live. Um, but if you put out a little toad abode, there's a good chance they'll be like, oh, wow. I'm trying to think of like a house. way to make it like say yes to the dress, but say yes to the toad abode. Yeah, I don't know how to. There's how nothing to make that, that rhymes. Um, say a bode to the toad something like that but anyway um it says to put the toad abode out into your backyard or garden or whatever um, open space you have put it out in the springtime or the growing season um and that way in the summer the little baby toads will hop in there and be like wow this is a great place to live um it says to put it in a shady spot if you can in the dampest part of your yard so if there's an area that doesn't get super great drainage might be a good choice um under a bush is good, near like your gutter is fine. Um, anywhere that's kind of wet, um, that's where they want to be. Um, and then make sure that whatever house you um, put down doesn't have like a bottom that goes underneath the soil because they like want to burrow in a little bit. Mm-hmm. They don't want them to just like hit the ground and they're like, I don't want to live here. Um, <laughs> now, like every animal on earth, they do need water. Um, so this again, they, I would argue they maybe even need it more than some other animals. It's true. They have porous skin. They need to be wet. Um, so this suggests like for the birds and for every other animal we've talked about so far, a small pond, a bird bath, or just a saucer with water in it will be okay. Um, make sure to keep the water fresh. Like we've discussed, keep it clean, so on and so forth. Um, and then there was a list of a whole bunch of other ways, um, besides putting in a toad abode. Um, to invite reptiles and herps to your backyard. Um, the first one was kind of sad, um, but frogs and toads are more active at night. They are um, little nocturnal predators oh for the most the part. The amount of frogs I see during the summertime on our front porch when I go outside at night is, yes. I mean, it's amazing. I love it, but like, oh my God, some of them are so big. They come to my house regularly in the summer at night because it'll rain all day and then they're trying to get out of the rain and they're like, you know what would be a good place? Emily's house. You know what that means you need? 
a twenty dollar tote boat. <laughs> Um, but this says, uh, if you live in a house where you have to mow the yard, only mow during the day, don't mow at night because you could be running them over. Oh God. Um, yep. Uh, and, uh, because they do have poor skin, it's really important to eliminate pesticides and fertilizers when you can that run into their water sources. Cause that literally just goes right into their, right skin. Into their skin. Um, it also, um, pesticides will often kill off the vegetation that they're eating, um, or the vegetation that attracts the bugs that they eat. Um, so you don't want to do that. And then plant native plants when you can, because um, that will encourage them to take up residence in your pond if you have one. Um, and then another important one was don't disturb leaf litter. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of reptiles and amphibians like to lay their eggs in leaf litter and often hide in there as well. Uh, so just leave the leaf litter. It's a great habitat for animals. So what we're um, saying is if you do all of these habitat things, you have zero yard maintenance. It's true. You just let it go. Let it grow. Um, and then lastly, uh, this is more for reptiles, um, I guess. Well, it could be for amphibians too, but just provide a variety of habitats. So shady spots, sunny spots, um, vines that they can climb on, etc. Um, you know, you want to be, you want to be as natural as possible. So they are like, yeah, that's a good place. I would like to live there. Um, you know, in Florida, we have no shortage of reptiles and amphibians running around. So this is true. I will say, just a fun little side note, uh, we have two African bullfrogs at my job that I care for, and their habitats have a humidifier, so it's kind of a very misty, and, you know, obviously, like Emily said, they have to breathe through their skin, but in order to do that, it has to be moist. So sometimes when we're in there with them or we're doing stuff in their habitat, um, we have a little spray bottle. And if they seem like it's not moist enough, we just spray them with a little spray bottle. And it's just real cute. <laughs> They'll just spray their little habitat. And like, and when when the water like starts to hit them from the spray bottle, you just see them like, ooh, yeah. <laughs> and like, that feels good. And it's just very adorable. I love frogs. <laughs> anyway, that was my side. <laughs> um, all right. That's really all I have. Uh, Kenzie. What else Ooh. can we do? Ooh, ho, ho, I'm so hey, Kenzie, I've got a question for you. Yeah. Where's the grass? Gee. We don't want it. No, want I well, no, you, yeah, you're right. Unless it's a native species, <laughs> Unless, we don't want it in this case. Um, or if it's yeah. in the Eurasian stuff. <laughs> I, they're like, grass hey, grass grass okay, stuff. what kind of grasses? Why is that still the funniest thing we've ever said? I'm still irrationally mad about it. I don't know why. Anyways, we're not going to talk about that right now. But what we are going to talk about is something known as a living lawn. Now, listener, you're like, what is a living lawn? This is great everything I dream about in my future home is literally just a living lawn. Pretty much. So a living lawn is often an outdoor space, usually characterized by a mixture of low-lying grasses, herbs, and flowers. Uh, living lawns typically demand less maintenance and thus a reduction in the use of fossil fuels and chemicals that are used to maintain more traditional lawns. So you can pretty much say bye-bye to mowing. Mm -hmm. Living lawns also act as a food source for a variety of wildlife, uh, from bees and butterflies to even birds or bats. Sometimes it can be described as being like a meadow or having a meadow effect. Um, and clover, actually, here in North America, is a great example as a nice base for a living lawn. Mm -hmm. Oh, they're so pretty. And they're so yeah. soft and pretty. 
Yeah, and they kind of they overlap a lot, Abby, when you were talking about having a um, have a wildlife habitat certified in your lawn. That's kind of, they're kind of the same thing almost in a way. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it says cover wildlife needs at least places to find shelter, and one of it is a meadow or prairie, mm-hmm. dense shrubs, thicket. Like, there's a lot of options that this there's obviously there's a lot of crossover. Right. Yeah. For sure. For sure. Uh, but having a living lawn can also provide sustenance for us as humans. So plant fruit trees or vegetables in or around your lawn. Uh, this is also a dream of mine, Gady. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it just... So the history of lawns is really interesting. And we're just going to give you the really watered down form because this is about as much as I know as well. But the lawn that we currently have today in the United States can draw its roots back to uh, 18th century France. And essentially when a lot of these noblemen and the noble ladies were like, hey, we have so much land and money that we don't need to utilize our land for farming or utilitarian practices. So we're just going to have this big monoculture of absolutely nothing. So that's essentially where it comes from. And it was a status symbol because like, hey, look at this land that I don't have to use. Um, And even now, like, look at the HOAs, right? I have so many feelings about HOAs. Oh, that was <laughs> and, not supposed to be inflammatory, but if we're going di- to oh, like start going off. Me? Does anyone actually like them? I no! don't think so. <laughs> no, like I can understand, obviously, you want certain regulations for neighborhood. You don't want clutter in the yards. That could be a potential sanitary um, or hazard. And, you know, sometimes it's not aesthetically pleasing to not have like cars. No one cares here. Yeah, but. But we always have living lawns, okay? It's good for the environment. It saves us having to use pesticides and fossil fuels, and just it's a lot easier to maintain, is all I'm saying. Um, but, anyways, getting back on topic, the Royal Botanic Garden of Edinburgh is an excellent resource for those of you wanting to learn more. Uh, currently at the RBG, scientists are studying the effectiveness of living lawns and their impact on biodiversity. Another great resource, uh, look to see if you can reach an agricultural extension agent. They are great to have if you're looking to create a garden or a living lawn uh, on your property. Uh, also, organizations like 4-H can help in <gasps> universities with agriculture departments. As well. I was in that! <laughs> yeah, you did that. I did, did that. that yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Kenzie. You're welcome. You're welcome. People Everyone should be 4-H. in 4-H. Yeah. All right. Well, of course, though, <laughs> I'm <laughs> probably a lot of us do not have means to afford access to a property with a lawn or a big outdoor space. Yeah, we sure don't. Yeah, no, I have a, I have a little balcony and that's about it. It's a nice balcony, but it doesn't get a lot of sun. <clears throat> Anyways, uh, of course, not everyone has access to a lawn or may even live in an area where such projects may be not allowed. <laughs> HOA. But if you happen to live in or around an urban area, uh, this is a great place for you to look into a community garden. Now, according to the USDA, a community garden is defined as plots of land, usually in urban areas, that are rented by individuals or groups for private gardens or are for the benefit of the people caring for the garden. Now, community gardens can come in all shapes and sizes, and their operation may differ depending on who owns or helps run the garden. These places, though, are shown to be incredibly beneficial, especially in food deserts. You guys have heard of food deserts, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. yes. Yeah. So for listeners who may not know or need a refresher on what exactly a food desert is, 
CDC defines as areas that lack access to affordable fruits, vegetables, whole grains, low-fat milk, and other foods that make up the full range of a healthy diet. So essentially, food deserts, usually you're about like a mile or more from the grocery store or from anywhere that has availability to said foods. Maybe your closest food retailer will be pre-packaged snacks and things from a gas station or a little convenience store down the way. So again, not a healthy, balanced diet. But community gardens can help provide and fill in that gap for fresh food, fruits, vegetables. And sometimes they can do that in exchange for people working in the garden, which actually has its own therapeutic benefits. Working in a garden, uh, obviously, it gets you moving. It gets you sweating. I can personally attest to that. <laughs> I was going to say, how do you know? <laughs> how do I know? It's like I'm paid to do it. <laughs> it's like I'm paid to garden. But also, it gets you out in the sunshine a lot of times. It's great. It's a good way for people in the community to connect with each other. And also, it's a great place for people to learn more about food and how it's grown, where it comes from. And it's very satisfying to see your food grown in front of you. And then when you get to eat it, I don't know about y'all, but it makes me feel really good inside. It's it it's makes really it cool. Better. Yeah. This is like, yes, I built in my own blood, sweat, and tears into this cucumber. <laughs> this is a cucumber. <laughs> this is a cucumber. <laughs> so many cucumbers, man. <laughs> they're, they're not going to understand why that's so funny, but it's so funny. It, it, is, it is funny. <clears throat> However, if there is no community garden in your area or you probably may have a hard time accessing it, if you're interested and are able to maybe just look in developing one yourself. The USDA website has a litany of resources and we are in the age of the internet. So with just a quick swipe of Google, you can find other places as well. Talk to local nonprofits or organizations around your community, even see if your neighbors and friends would like to help. And maybe if you're lucky, maybe your HOA may even get on it. They can, you can have a community garden in your neighborhood, which I think would be really cool. Mm -hmm. So Also, if you don't, have like a space for community garden rooftop gardens are a good alternative as well yes rooftop gardens are also great and especially in urban areas where there's mm -hmm. not a lot of land you can develop and it also does it isn't it supposed to help save with like energy and things like that yeah because it helps with heating and cooling that's because it. you know that's that's why we have trees and you know <laughs> that's a whole other thing but then the other thing, too, is that having things like community gardens or rooftop gardens are really important for the wildlife that lives around because cities are so big mm -hmm. now that animals like birds and butterflies and other kinds of insects literally can't get across the city in one go. Mm -hmm. So having a green space to stop, no matter if it's as big as the rooftop or it's like a window box that you have a couple native plants in, is vitally important. And actually, it's probably more important than all of us planning our native stuff because they at least have a spot to land in for the night before they're ready to continue the next day and it makes it safe. <laughs> it's like a little hotel. It is. And yeah. I'm, I'm really On passionate about this hotel. because the, the number of kids at work that I talk to that are like, I don't have a backyard. I can't do anything mm -hmm. is so sad, but really they can make the biggest difference. So if you have people that you know that have apartments and they have the ability to do like a window box or like, Literally putting a potted plant out on their balcony, encourage it because it's it's the most important thing that we can do. There you go. Yeah, wow. that's that's excellent. Yeah. 
And also too, again, for mental wellness, being around and taking care of plants has a lot of benefits in and of itself. And especially oh, yeah. with how anxiety ridden we are these days. What? <laughs> no. I saw this thing the other day that was like for this new generation, um, pets have become the new children and plants have become the new pets. <laughs> Actually, that is super yeah, accurate. Yeah. That's pretty accurate. <laughs> I mean, my parents look at my cat as as their grandchild. My mother bought Magnolia three neckerchiefs. And my parents bought Arthur the water fountain for him for his birthday. That's why he got the little flower fountain. My mom claims to hate cats, and then she's bought Izumi about half her toys. (laughs) There you go. We love love our cat grandparents. Um, one other thing before we wrap up this topic is if you don't also have, you know, the space to do these sort of wildlife habitats uh, in your where you live, um, there's other ways to go green. Uh, so one example for me right now is I don't have a, you know, I live in an apartment in a complex and we do not have a very, uh, we have a concrete patio and that's about it. Uh but something in my community is that there is no recycling program, which upset me greatly when we moved here. Um, and I've been recycling. I've been bringing my recycling to work, actually, because there is an employee recycling uh, program at the place that I work. Oh. Plus, like, most of my recycling I just make into animal enrichment. <laughs> uh, so, so, like, it works out for us, like, that we can still recycle even while we're living here. But the more I've, like, lived here, the more I want to try and implement a recycling program or see if that's something that's possible. Um, so that's, like, one of my goals, actually, for this year is to look more into that. So there are other ways you can look into, you know, going green uh, in your own space, in your own home this year. And that's one other example of some something to do. Um, I'll probably have to talk to the HOA about it, which which terrifies me <laughs> in many ways. But that's Just fine. Just know that I'll we would it. all fight them. So thank you, thank you. Especially Kenzie, she'll break their knees. Listen, these break hands their knee kneecaps for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> well, that uh, brings us to the conclusion of our topic. I mean, we don't really. I feel like the conservation conversation was the episode. Basically, the uh, yeah, the conversation <laughs> we much. just had. Um, as far as announcements are concerned, I've got one. Yeah, go for it. Patrons, you didn't really ask, but we did it anyway. The first bonus episode is available on our Patreon. Yeah. I posted it this morning. Great. So if you are a patron um, for $5 a month, you can become a Beluga Babe. And you Beluga can also babe. listen to... Our first bonus episode where we tear apart Finding Nemo. Yes, it's very fun, (laughs) We basically gave Emily the microphone and said, what's wrong with this movie? And she She said, said, where do I start? Many things. Finding Nemo and Finding Dory both included. Well, yes, because we couldn't not talk about Bailey the the Beluga. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. Uh, For all our patrons, please go, go ahead and listen to that bonus content. You have earned it. Uh, and please, again, always follow us on our social medias, Instagram, Facebook, and our email. You can always uh, contact us at conservationqueenspodcasts at gmail.com. Um, thank you guys so much for joining us this week. Now go out there and stay sustainable. Bye. 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 <laughs>